It's just a diagnosis, not a sentence. It's Your Life Lived Well with Dr. Kevin Payne. Welcome back. And we have another delightful topic today, burnout and compassion fatigue. I'm I'm pausing while you laugh. So this past year, COVID-19 has stressed our healthcare system. And burnout has become a really common topic of discussion. But in truth, the rate of burnout has been shockingly high for a long time now across all of the healthcare and caregiving professions. The actual rates of burnout, even though we're talking about it a lot right now, haven't changed that much in the past year. At any given time, at least one in three physicians fit the criteria for burnout. But almost two-thirds of them say that they would never seek help for it. In some specializations, this number is as high as 75%. Between one-third and one-half, or maybe a little more, of clinical nurses are right there in burnout. The same is true for social workers, nurses' aides, and other clinical staff who deal directly with patients and families. So when so many of us are experiencing the same challenges, it isn't an individual problem. It's a problem with the system. A lot of what I do when I'm not sitting in front of a microphone blabbing is consulting with medical health wellness therapeutic organizations about how they can improve the services they provide for people with chronic illness. And this burnout issue is something that I'm constantly talking to those organizations about. And so, you know, in this episode, we're going to talk about burnout, which has a really narrow, weird technical definition, and we'll get into that in a minute. Uh, But we'll also be talking about kind of a more general issue of compassion fatigue, which happens amongst these professionals, but it also happens amongst the loved ones and caregivers in our lives. This is difficult work. It's not just physically exhausting. It's cognitively exhausting. It's emotionally exhausting. It's practically exhausting. It exhausts our resources. It's socially exhausting. And to feel overwhelmed and disengaged and just like you feel like throwing up your hands and running away from it all is not a pathological reaction. This is a normal reaction to a really abnormal set of circumstances. If we want to technically define burnout, okay, so let's just start there with that technical definition. It is a professional issue in its technical sense, and it stems from chronic workplace distress that is unsuccessfully managed. 
And I would argue, again, this is not individual mismanagement. You are not somehow lacking if you feel burnout. But it is a symptom of a dysfunctional system that shows its dysfunction through individual symptoms. So each and every one of us who've lived through this or are living through it now are an individual system of a poorly adapted system. Giving care is taxing. It's difficult. Spending your life working to support people in their most difficult moments is physically, cognitively, and emotionally draining. And then what makes it worse is when we feel that way, we can also feel guilty because we're dreading or resenting the act of giving care. And we're giving care because we love to do it, because we want to do it, because we know it's the right thing to do it. You don't get into any of these professions unless you feel a calling. You certainly don't stay in it unless you feel a calling. It is a meaningful thing to do with your life. But when we feel burnt out, somehow we feel guilty. As if, well, this shouldn't happen because I'm doing this good thing, this right thing. If you're doing it informally, you're doing it for someone you love. And again, you feel like, well, it shouldn't be something that I'm dreading doing. It shouldn't be something I'm resenting doing. It shouldn't be something I feel disconnected from doing. And we feel like something is wrong with us. So, right at the beginning of this episode, I'm here to tell you full stop, nothing is wrong with you. This is not your problem even though you have to deal with it. So you can kind of look at this technical definition of burnout as where you are, air quotes, quote-unquote, normal, but your work is killing you. (laughs) And it tends to manifest in three major ways. First is a feeling of energy depletion or exhaustion. So you're dealing with fatigue or exhaustion. It's not just physical, but it's emotional. You can feel cognitively slow, all of that. And I would refer you back to a previous episode on tired, fatigued, and exhausted uh, to kind of understand what those differences are. But the point here is, When you get that deep into being tired that you are fatigued or exhausted, you don't recover as well or as quickly as you would from the same kind of stressor. And and that's just part of it. The second way that burnout tends to manifest itself is when you begin feeling distant or disconnected or negative, or cynical towards your job. So you have either reduced or negative emotions. You feel depersonalization. 
and and all of this is kind of disconcerting because you spend a lot of your time at work and what was a profession that you probably got into because you found it deeply fulfilling now at best leaves you feeling empty and then the third way that burnout tends to manifest itself is where we're feeling ineffective or unaccomplished at your job. You've lost that sense of an internal locus of control. You, you lack any sense of efficacy in what you're doing. You, 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 you think that you're butting your head up against a wall and never making a difference in what you're trying to do. And that is discouraging and disheartening. So what usually comes from this is you actually do become less effective in what it is you're doing. And we see a drop in quality of care. And we see a drop in your ability to meaningfully connect with those you are trying to care for. And all of this is, is really disconcerting, and it, it, it makes you feel uneasy. And this spiral, this doubt spiral, it's a wicked doubt spiral. It just keeps drawing you in. And, of course, we see burnout now in lots of other areas. Some of the seminal research has been done uh, on the military. Uh, we, we have research in recent decades on firefighters, EMTs, first responders. Uh, we see it in social workers. We see it in teachers and educators. And, you know, I can, I can personally say that, that, you know, I spent 15 years as a professor, and I love teaching, and I love students, and I love being helpful in their lives and, and helping them build a, a professional course that that they're going to feel really satisfied with. But, you know, in that 15 years I, I was a professor, I taught 164 sections of 30 different preps. And at the same time, I was managing a department with 150 instructors and about 10,000 student enrollments a year. The last couple of years that I did that, I was burnt out. And I had to make a change. And I really didn't want to do it, but I was lost and disconnected. So if you are dealing with burnout, or what we're going to talk about a little more deeply in the next segment, compassion fatigue, then realize you're not alone. I understand. I've been there too. And in the next section, we'll talk a little bit more about it and what it looks like and how to recognize it. And then we'll see if we can figure a way out of it together. We all have challenges. Mine is multiple sclerosis. We each have this one life. And we didn't choose to be saddled with chronic illness. But there's a better way. So I choose to just jump. 
and you can too. It's your life. Live it well. JustJump.life And we're back, and we are accepting that, you know, sometimes we get burnt out. And part of that burnout is compassion fatigue. That's that number two in that list I gave you earlier, that feeling distant, disconnected, negative, cynical, etc. And this is something that happens not just as part of burnout. It's part of this larger constellation of issues that surround living with and caring for chronic health conditions. So when we're talking about compassion fatigue, there, there are some other terms that are used as synonyms or, or closely related issues. Secondary traumatic stress. Empathic distress. Vicarious trauma. One of my favorites, moral injury. Which, which, and, and this is a really interesting idea, and it arose in the study of PTSD in, and burnout in military personnel. And a moral injury is where you have witnessed something that you find deeply morally offensive or injurious. Combat. Or you have been placed in a position where you have to do something that you find morally repugnant. And we don't just see this in military personnel. We see this often in healthcare settings where, for example, the physician has what they feel is the best course of treatment. And that course of treatment is unavailable for them to prescribe because, say, the insurance company won't approve it. Or there's the particular patient doesn't meet the organizational standards for having that sort of treatment. So moral injury is a big part of this. Um, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, or as I prefer, post-traumatic distress, because there's nothing disordered about it. It is an entirely natural reaction to an awful experience. So join me in calling it PTD, post-traumatic distress. And why are all these things related to one another? Because living a chronic illness is lasting and repeated trauma. And so is caregiving. Lasting and repeated trauma. And so much of what we deal with are not the direct symptoms of our conditions, but all of those traumas, large and small, that keep returning to our lives. And as caregivers, we share those with the people we love. And as professional caregivers, 
we are consistently faced with people on their worst days when they are living through these. And with chronic illnesses, you know, we get really frustrated about there not being another side to our illness, about not getting well again and going back to normal people, non-sick people. I'm waving my hands with air quotes here. But this is really disheartening for caregivers as well. You know, I've often put myself in the position of my physicians and caregivers and and thought, you know, it's got to be really frustrating to be faced with a patient like me where I'm never going to get better. And all the efforts that they're making is just slowing the tide, if we're lucky. That's difficult, and that's overwhelming, and it requires a lot of energy. And so, how do we see this express? It expresses through fatigue and exhaustion. It expresses through social isolation and disconnection. Sometimes being faced with all of those traumas time after time after time, you just have to get distant. And sometimes physically we can't get distant. So emotionally, socially, we become withdrawn. It expresses itself with emotional outbursts. Our emotions can be, here's a technical term here, labile emotions. I like that word, labile. It means that they vary erratically. And the emotion that we're showing may not seem appropriate to the people around you. Because you're not reacting directly to what is happening. You're reacting to the internal context and all of the other things that are going on. It expresses itself as anxiety, dysthymia, and depression. So anxiety, this, this future-oriented apprehension, right? Dysthymia, which is a mild form of depression. Or, you know, full-blown clinical depression. It expresses itself in cynicism and despair. There are a lot of activities where you are faced with human mortality, where there is a dark sense of humor that's associated with it. And we often see that in the medical profession. Um, Skydivers have a, a really dark sense of humor because... Death's always a possibility, doing what you love. It expresses itself as sadness and apathy. It expresses itself, and this is one that we really have a difficult time dealing with. It can express itself as guilt, as shame, as a sense of betrayal, as anger, even as disgust. Because sometimes, as caregivers, we find ourselves being caught in what's called a double bind or a triple bind or a quadruple bind as we're, as we're trying to manage very different commitments and reinforcers and motivations. So 
as a healthcare professional, you're trying to give the best care possible, but you're also trying to get to all the patients that you have to see that day. You have to work within the constraints of the organization and the insurance and all that stuff. So it's, it's difficult. You can feel caught. It, it, there are a lot of dilemmas that are involved. It can express itself as persistent physical ailments, aches and pains and other things like that. Don't have physical antecedents. They are literally physical manifestations of your mental and emotional and psychic and moral injury that you feel. It can express itself as recurring nightmares or flashbacks. And it can also express itself as a higher probability of suicidal thoughts and actions. You realize, of physicians, 14% have admitted to having suicidal thoughts. 1% have admitted to having attempted suicide. 6% declined to answer. In the United States right now, we average one physician suicide a day. And of course, we see these kinds of outsized occurrence of suicidal ideation and attempts in other caregiving professions as well. And all of these things, all of them happen to loved ones and informal caregivers as well. Compassion fatigue causes people to walk away from professions they love and from relationships with people they love because they get so lost in it they can't see a way to get better without radically changing their environment. We feel lost because we know that we're not doing what we set out to do and we can't find a way to get back there. So, in the next segment, we're going to talk about some of the causes of burnout and compassion fatigue that you can be on the lookout for and then I promise before we get to the end, we'll be looking at some solutions as well. We all have challenges. Mine is multiple sclerosis. We each have this one life. And we didn't choose to be saddled with chronic illness. But there's a better way. So I choose to just jump. And you can too. It's your life. Live it well. Just jump. Dot life. And we're back looking at causes for burnout and compassion fatigue. So we've left a big question here. What causes burnout and compassion fatigue? Well, first... Before I get into any of the individual things, and we'll focus on some of the individual issues because those are things that each of us as individuals have some ability to bend in our favor. But 
Before that, it's important to emphasize that we have a dysfunctional healthcare system, and everybody who works in it and everybody who has to deal with it all the time will agree with that statement. And it's even more pernicious than that because it's a dysfunctional healthcare system that tells us that burnout and compassion fatigue is an individual problem with you not being resilient enough. That's abusive. That's gaslighting. This is an excuse for a toxic healthcare environment with conflicting motivations. And not all of those motivations are working to the benefit of the people it serves or the people who do that frontline service. So that's really important to acknowledge and to keep in mind that the system is screwed. And it is not irrational if you react irrationally to an irrational system. So from a professional perspective, what are the issues that professionals in the healthcare industry, physicians, nurses, others, tend to cite as problems that they're dealing with that lead to professional burnout? The first is too much time on administrative tasks. So there's a lot of paperwork and record keeping and interfacing with 20 different insurance providers and, and drug companies and, and things like that where often they have to go to bat for us to get the procedure or the drug that our health care demands. So concerned medical professionals are running a lot of interference <laughs> and and they spend a lot of time on record keeping because everything has to be documented the second reason that is commonly cited for professional burnout sort of naturally follows from the first and that is not getting to spend enough time with patients. So I know from talking with thousands of people with chronic illnesses over the years that one of our biggest frustrations is we don't get enough face time with our medical professionals to deal with our concerns and our questions and our issues. And I can tell you that from talking with thousands of medical professionals over the years, this is one of their biggest frustrations as well, not getting to spend enough time delivering the care that they got into this profession to do. Instead, having to spend so much time in front of their EMR or on the phone or whatever it is, doing those administrative things. A third issue that tends to be cited as a cause for professional burnout is too many work hours. It is not unusual to spend approximately an hour outside 
of whatever, however many hours you spend. So you spend one hour dealing with patients, probably going to spend another hour dealing with record keeping and administrivia and all of those other things. So you put in a full day dealing with patients and you've still got a full day of, of keeping up with all of the administrivia and all of the other things that go on behind the scenes. So there's a lot of work, and a lot of the work that's in the job isn't what the job is about. It's about all of the stuff that surrounds doing the job. And that's really frustrating. A fourth common cause that medical health and wellness professionals are citing as leading to burnout is increased patient demand. So on the one hand, this is really good because patients today, and you notice patients is one of those words that I only use in the context of, you know, these meetings. And we're actually going to have an episode coming up pretty quick on the language surrounding chronic health and illness issues because uh, I feel really passionately about it. But we tend to be more proactive we tend to be more engaged. We tend to be more informed, although we may or may not have good information coming into it. But we tend to, you know, more patients tend to have better information coming into it now. And that increases the demand. It also means that your medical health, wellness, therapeutic professionals that you're dealing with are often being faced with patient issues that are outside their specialties because for us they're the face of the system that they get to interact with and while they have you there they want help with those pressing issues and that of course is why I started Your Life Lived Well because most of these issues we're dealing with are not directly medical. And when you ask your physician about these emotional and practical and environmental and social kinds of concerns that follow from them, well, they have as about as much training to deal with that as you do. It's not their area. And that's really frustrating for them because not only are there more demands, there are demands that are way outside what it is they feel comfortable and competent helping you with. And again, that's a systemic problem because the system isn't providing you with other faces that you can talk to that are adequately trained for that sort of thing. A fifth issue that is often cited as a cause for professional burnout, especially amongst physicians, is a worry about professional reputation, especially online. Because now we've got systems to rate everybody for everything. And unfortunately, those rating systems aren't very accurate. Because we all know that the person with the loudest complaint is going to go in there and muck up the works. And of course, this has become a big issue because professional reputation is crucial to continuing a career. 
And when it has become so easy for someone with a complaint. Now, again, you know, this is sometimes people have legitimate complaints and they should get out there. But it's become easy for people with minor complaints or misunderstandings to make a big stink about it as well. And the sixth cause often cited for professional burnout is that they work all day long with sick, scared, and hurting people. Okay, so by definition, this is what they're doing. But when we have constant exposure to secondary trauma, it is itself traumatic. And we don't have enough supports built into the system to support dealing with that exposure to trauma all the time. So now that we've talked about some of the causes for burnout, in the next segment, we're going to conclude with some solutions. I'm Dr. Kevin Payne. Just jump with me into your life lived well. Half of us now live with chronic illness. Mine is multiple sclerosis. It's your life. Live it well. A chronic diagnosis doesn't mean goodbye to the good life you wanted. You don't have to feel overwhelmed or hopeless. I'll show you how to save yourself. Take your first step at justjump.life. All right, let's talk about some solutions. I, uh, I, and I guess I'll probably apologize at the beginning here for, I wish I had a magic wand that I could wave and make all these things better immediately. Some of these solutions are going to require a lot of us banding together and making noise about. Because the first set of solutions for burnout and for so many of the problems that we face in our healthcare system are systemic changes. And systemic changes don't happen unless a lot of people band together and give voice to their challenges. It's really as simple as that. So what kind of systemic changes do we need? We need to, and you know, just parenthetically, I'll, I'll note, these are things that, that I see continually in healthcare organizations when I go in and look at them and, and consult for them. So everybody's facing their variations on these same issues. And, and the first systemic issue is workflow. We need to redesign workflow because we're not doing our work efficiently and effectively for all the things that happen outside the patient engagement so that we can actually focus on the patient engagement that we're there for. So we need to rethink who's doing what within the organization and how they're doing it and so forth, right? We need better communication. And one of those basic issues is that we just suck at having difficult conversations. Even though when we have those difficult conversations, they usually end up not being nearly as difficult as we anticipated them being. And the aftermath is usually a lot more positive than we anticipated it being. And most of the time when it comes right down to it, 
the person that you're having the difficult conversation with probably also understands that they needed to have that conversation as well. So better communication. And the tone and tenor of communication in any organization starts with the leadership. They set it. And even if they run around mouthing the words, oh, we believe in great communication, if they don't practice it and they don't positively reinforce when it happens, then people very quickly pick up on what they do and not what they say. A third thing that we have to do with systems is... Recognize everybody's values and benefits and motivations and and things like that. You have to look at the organization from each individual location in the organization. So we have to look at it as a physician and as a charge nurse and as a receptionist and as, you know, all of those things, right? We, We have to see that. And if we don't, then the solutions that we tend to devise aren't really solutions. Because if you don't actually sit down and talk with, say, the receptionist about what his actual day is like and what he's doing, you're just presuming. And you're going to presume wrong. And then we have to realign the motivations within the organization. We have to realign their motivations and their responsibilities, but also, and this is one of my pet peeves with organizational change, and, you know, as, as a sociologist and social psychologist, I've analyzed organizations for almost three decades now, and I spent a lot of time doing this. One of our big issues is when we, when we make organizational change, we've got this big plan, and we're very good about saying, all right, this person in this role has this responsibility, and this person has this responsibility, and so forth. And we want to hold people responsible, but we forget that if you give me the responsibility, you also have to give me the authority and the resources to get it done. And we really suck at that. So what's the, what's the upshot of 90% of organizational change? You've made the problem worse because you've given people more explicit responsibilities, but you haven't distributed the authority and the resources to really get it done. And I see this in healthcare organizations all the time. And, and this is a massive source of the distress that leads to burnout. The second thing, and, you know, I can go on and on and on about organizational change, but this is not, you know, what that's about. But uh, that's, you know, that's what I've spent years doing, helping organizations. We can do this better. People are curious because they are people and because they've always worked in organizations, they think they know how to do it. No, you, you, you know how to be a dysfunctional person and you know how to work in a dysfunctional organization because... Most people are dysfunctional, bless our hearts, and most organizations are dysfunctional. <laughs> and, and you think because that's all you've seen, that that's what is, you know, has got to be. But, but no, that's not the case. Second thing we have to do is we have to do better training and awareness. And what I've talked about in this episode of the podcast is... A little tiny bit about that was taken from uh, training sessions that I do for organizations. 
about dealing with burnout and, and compassion fatigue. And the first thing is you've got to recognize the problem. You've got to become more aware. And then you've got to follow through on your awareness. You've got to do something about it rather than in your more enlightened state, suffering in silence. But at least now you know why you're suffering. No, that's not enough. Which means that an organization has to not squelch people when they come to them with these entirely natural issues, but supports them and provides avenues to help improve those conditions. But it begins with a change in organizational culture, and it begins on the individual level with people being trained to be aware and actually feeling empowered to say something about it. Three, take action early. These are always easier to deal with before they get really bad. But humans tend to just shrug off self-care until things get really bad. And then it doesn't work very well, and we feel helpless, and the spiral accelerates. Life should generally be a pleasurable experience. But when it starts getting bad, that's when you need to take action. Not when it's been bad for a year or a month or a lifetime. So take action early. A fourth thing we can do at an individual level, and, and of course some of this will require organizational buy-in, and, but, but it can start from the bottom. And, and this is something that, this is one of my mantras that, that I, I come to, delegate, automate, consolidate, habituate. Now, I'm going to unpack this. Delegate, automate, consolidate, habituate. Everything we do here, and this is this is such a huge topic. It's 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 a chapter in my book, and it's 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 a massive thing. But it's at any given time we have a capacity that we can deliver. We have a physical capacity. We have a cognitive capacity. We have an emotional capacity. We have a practical capacity. We have a social capacity. Okay, and. An action needs to successfully pass through all those gates in order to get done. If the capacity we can deliver is higher than the demand in front of us, we succeed. But as we get more tired, you know that the capacity we can deliver for the first time we do something that day is a lot higher than what we can deliver the 10th time or the 20th time. And we know that. So we have to design our systems and our workflow to be successful the 20th time, not the first time. How do we do this? Well, don't do everything yourself. Work together. Delegate some of the things that you have to do. Automate. We got snazzy technology that can automate lots of the stuff that we do. Automate the stuff that can be automated so that you can focus on the things that require uniquely human characteristics.
consolidate. We have these things called process losses. When you do one task and you shift to another kind of task and you shift to another kind of task, you lose some effectiveness and efficiency each time you switch. So in your workday, group like things together. So see some patients, make some quick notes, then sit down at the EMR and do several sets together, right? And then habituate. When we push things down to the level of habit, we make it easier for us to do. There's a whole other episode in all this because that's just a lot. But do those things. And then five, the last thing that we can do here, and I'm going to sound like a broken record again, self-care isn't an option. I know we think it's smarmy, happy BS, but it's not. Take care of yourself. That means fuel and movement and sleep and rest and compartmentalizing your life, and we've got other episodes on all of those things, so I'm not going to belabor it here, but you have to take care of yourself, especially because we're dealing with a system that is dysfunctional. And until we can band together and make the system better, we have to do everything we possibly can at the individual level to protect and support ourselves so that we can be there and protect and support the people that we're trying to give care for. So with that thought, take care of yourself. Go forth, be well, do well, and do good. Sure to join the conversation at Your Life Lived Well on all of your favorite social media sites, Patreon, and of course, yourlifelivedwell.co. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe.